Tonight we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians 13, and I've talked in services a lot about 1 Corinthians 13, but those services were always weddings. 1 Corinthians 13 gives you a picture of what love looks like. It offers this beautiful, amazing, wonderful description of what love looks like. And so when we hear it, we tend to think immediately, we go in our minds and we think of weddings, but this passage is applicable to marriage, but it's given to the church. This passage is for me, this passage is for you, this passage is for the body of Christ, the bride of Christ in this world, charged and commissioned by Christ to go out into the world, to shine His light, to pour into the broken and the hurting and those that are desperate and cast out. And interestingly, when Paul lists this passage, it's not in a church that has come together and is doing well and and everybody's shining that light. It's in a church that's utterly consumed with division and selfishness and self-centeredness and hurts and, and everybody's defensive and everybody's on guard. And Paul comes and offers 1 Corinthians 13 to them as a way of saying, stop. You guys are doing amazing things. You guys are pouring out. You guys are are throwing in all your effort into ministry. And I'm here to tell you, if you're not doing it in love, it's meaningless. It's all for nothing. A few weeks ago, I talked with, maybe a few months ago, we were in the middle of the mustard seed campaign, and and I got up here and I spoke about heaven. And we talked about how all the amazing, beautiful things of heaven, the wonderfulness, the peace, the radiance, the glory, the happiness, the, the joy, the golden streets, the crystal streams, all of that, wonderful things, being with Jesus and seeing his beauty. And then you look at Revelation and the way it describes heaven, and I said it, it, he says that it's a city, it's built up like a city, and you're thinking, oh, he's referring to his people as the city, and all through the scriptures you find his people are being referred to as living stones. This whole project, this whole story of redemption is a story of building God's eternal house. God is building heaven here, now. You know, on Wednesday when we had our worship service, I'm already on a tangent, this is dangerous. On Wednesday we had our worship service and Ryan got up and sang that song, Heaven is all around us. This is right after Istanbul and right after all the mess that's in our world and our our chaos and, and some personal issues going on that are hurtful and they're deep wounds and you just look around and go, heaven is all around us? Like, for real? We'll see your goodness in the land of the living? God, let it be true. Man, I want to see your goodness. Will you move? 
I want heaven to be all around us. And then God, in preparing for this message, just came upside me and said, Sam, do you remember what you preached? Heaven is all around us. I'm building heaven with the people in your lives. You want to see my goodness in the land of the living? It starts with you. Go out and love them. Let me build heaven through you. Here, now. You know, we're in the middle of this construction season. You look outside and everything is a mess and it's all flattened. And let me tell you, I'm excited about this expansion. I'm excited about everything that's going to become. What I'm not excited about is all the stuff that goes with it. The permitting, the, the inspectors, everything that you, you do. If you breathe in Fort Lauderdale, you need a permit for it. And here's the deal, like I get why they do it. They don't want us to build a building that's going to collapse. They don't want us doing electrical that's going to burn something down. They don't want us putting in toilets that are going to back up with sewage. They don't want us building a parking lot that's going to flood the neighborhood. And so they send their inspectors out to make sure that everything we're doing is building to code. I get it. And this passage today, God is going to come to us and he's going to say, you guys are building heaven. This is kingdom ministry my building code. What needs to be in every aspect of your life, every aspect of your ministry, my building code boils down to this. Love. Everything you do, if it's not done in love, on that day when you stand before God, when you stand before the throne and you give the account of all the things that you have brought to the table, if God sees that it was infused with your love, that good Christ-centered agape love, then it will go on to receive a reward. But if it does not have love, it will fail the inspection. And that investment in this life goes in this passage we find out that love is active it's not an emotion it's not just a response those those are easy love is an active active decision of the will it's a resolute commitment that says i am going to love you come hell or high water i am in all in for the cause of Christ in you. Nothing can shake me away from that. That's the brand of love that Paul is going to come and talk to the Corinthian church about today. And if you want to know kind of a recap of where he's been and talking with the Corinthians so far in this letter, the whole book so far, almost all of it boils down to this. You guys are not loving Consider some of the things they're doing. They're boasting about their knowledge. That's not loving. They're dividing into camps. I follow Cephas, and I follow Apollos, and I follow... That's not loving. They're using religion as a weapon. They're withholding from the poor. They're reveling in members' sins. That's not loving. They're suing each other in public courts and causing others to stumble and lording gifts over each other. Spiritual gifts. 
and lording it over each other. That's not loving. And so Corinth's main issue, after Paul has laid it up in the first 12 chapters, he comes to us and says, here's the deal, guys. This is the main issue. It's not doctrine. It's your heart. You're more concerned about serving your self-interest than you are about dying to your self-interest to lift others up, to build into them. Paul starts 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men, because that was a big deal in chapter 12, speaking in tongues and all the offices and gifts. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What does he mean by that? He means all you're doing is attracting attention to yourself. If you're speaking in tongues and doing all this stuff and the only concern you have in using those gifts is look at me. And you don't have love to use those gifts for your brother. You're just a clanging gong. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge and I have all faith so I can move mountains or remove mountains but I don't have love, I am nothing. If you do all things in ministry, you pour yourself out, and the whole time you're going, stupid people. If I give away all that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Think about who's saying this. This is... This is Paul, he wants to take this gospel, spread, take over the world, and think about how different the Christian ethic is than the ethics of other religions around the world. You know, in the last seven days, we've had terrorist attacks of a radical group of people who have a radical view of their religion, and this is what they do. They go into an airport, and they give over their bodies to be burned and incinerated to take out others with no love pure hate, and they gain nothing. I read in the news this morning in Bangladesh where a group went into a restaurant and quizzed people whether they could recite verses of the Quran. If they could, they got a dinner. If they couldn't, they got mutilated. Do you have knowledge? Is your doctrine right? Christianity comes and says, let's start with the heart. If your efforts, if your religion is not infused with love to build up, it's nothing. You're nothing. You gain nothing. Suppose my wife and I, we have a beautiful family. These are our kids and our dog. Last time we saw the dog, little puppy. Um, That's Caleb. And Leah, who is Boogie, or Sweet Sweet. And then Jacob, who's Chicken. And then Dutch, who's a Dud Duddy. <laughs> and they all have a nickname. Suppose Laura and I decided that we wanted to take a mission trip to Haiti, but we wanted to go for two weeks. That's too much to ask. 
grandma, granddad. So we decided, you know what, for two weeks, we're going to hire a nanny. And so when the nanny comes, we leave out a list and we say, hey, this is the way that we want our household managed. This is what needs to be done to the lawn. This is what needs to be done to the pool. This is what time the kids eat. This is what time they go to bed. This is where their clothes are. This is where the food is. This is where the grocery budget money is. This is how you clean the pool. And we go away for two weeks. And we leave the most precious things. Things. People. Dogs. In our lives. To this nanny. And when we come back, we pull up into the driveway, and the yard is perfectly manicured. All the bushes are cut, which you know means I've been out of town. You go to the backyard, you look at the pool, it is sparkling blue, it's like more beautiful than it's ever been. You walk inside, and the floors are mopped, and the carpet's clean, and the beds are made, and the kids are dressed appropriately. And they're sitting on the couch, quiet and well-behaved, and we walk in, and probably I would know something was wrong. But we'd say, oh my goodness, this nanny has done an amazing job. Like, can we hire you for the year? This is fantastic. But suppose we went to the nanny cam, and we found out that everything she accomplished, she did by cruelty. She did by crushing the spirits of my kids. She did through ugly tactics. She beat my dog. How valuable is the service of that nanny? You see, Christ has commissioned and charged us to care for his children, to build them up, to accomplish a mission, but to do so in a way that is tender, that shows love and respect and dignity to his children. And if if when we stand before the throne, he says, man, you're so nasty. You were bitter. You held grudges. You kept records of wrongs. You rejoiced in the fight and the wrongdoing. That's not pleasing. You see, love is defined. Romans 13 tells us that, this, that love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus is asked, what are the two greatest commandments? What does he say? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all the law and the prophets hangs on these two commands. This is basically it. This is it. Love God, love each other. Love is the summary of what I'm calling you to do. And then John and his epistle says this, anyone who does not, lo- does not love does not know God because God is love. You want to know what the building code of heaven is. It's love. Why? Because its designer and architect is the very essence of love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son Jesus into this world so that we dead in our sins and trespasses, hopeless in this broken mess of a world so that we might live through him. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We love because he first loved us. 
what John is saying is if you have tasted, if you have tasted of the love of Christ, if you have experienced His compassion and His goodness, and you've embraced Him, then you will be loving and you will know that He abides in you. Because if you grab hold of Him, the Spirit dwells in you. And the fruit of the Spirit manifests. But even the fruit of the Spirit, I want you to walk through, the fruit of the Spirit is just fueled by this love that Paul is talking about. I want to show you the fruit of the Spirit as Paul defines them in this passage. Love is the first one he lists. Then you got joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We'll go through this passage Joy, love rejoices in the truth. It it finds hope in the gospel. It looks to the promises of God and can find joy in the darkest of times. Peace, love is not rude. It bears all things. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's good. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It's faithful. It endures through all things. It's gentle. It's not irritable. It doesn't look for a fight. Self-control. It doesn't insist on its own way. In the Bible, there are four Greek words that are used for love. There's storge, which comes from a familial kind of a love. There's eros, which is the appetitive, immediate, needing to satisfy a need, whether it's sensual or sexual or emotional. Then there's phileo, which is an affectionate regard, friendship. That's a deep love. And then there's agape. A resolute decision of the will. Or as Aquinas says, agape is to will the good of one another. See, all those other loves, agape is what is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13. This is about agape. All those other loves come from your bloodline, from your choice, from convenience, because it fills you up. And God, Paul, comes to us and says, the chief love, the greater love, is agape. You see, this is a decision of the will. It, it's with an aim to satisfy something else, to do good and to build up something else, to find purpose in that something else. And agape is not always used for good things. The Bible talks about how there, you can have agape love toward darkness and money and the wages of evil. It's where you make a resolute decision. This is what I will serve with my life. I'm all in. I find my purpose in this. But agape stands apart. It's a decision. It's a commitment. Love is patient. Notice in all 16 attributes of love, they're all active. They're not gushy. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. When you read this passage, see if you can take the name test. Put your name in place of love and see if it makes you want to chuckle to even say it. Sam is patient. There's my wife right there. (laughs) I'm not even going to go there. Sam is patient. Sam is kind. Sam does not envy. Sam doesn't boast. Sam 
It's not arrogant or rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Think of your life. Think of your marriage. Think of the way that you work with those in your work environment. Think of your kids. Can you put your name in that sentence? Are you irritable? Are you patient? Do you keep records of wrongs? If somebody wrongs you, do you go, I'm going to bury them (laughs) by keeping this record of wrongs? You see, there's a reason why this is used in weddings. You know, and... In Corinth, Paul gives this to two people that are coming each other to want to rip out each other's throat. And so this is used in weddings to try to beat, beat it to the punch. He's saying, if you are all those things, if you're patient and kind, if you love actively, man, what an amazing environment you'll create. You'll make a sanctuary for the other person because here's the real deal. We're all broken. We're all a mess. We all have scars. We all have wounds. We all need somebody where we can go and find solace who knows our spiritual nakedness and all of our mess and know that that person is safe, to know that that person is going to bear all things with us and endure all things with us, and who's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us, and marriage is the closest thing to your relationship with Christ that you experience in this earth. When marriage is done right, it's an amazing sanctuary where you can be free and vulnerable and broken and built up from the pit. And what Paul is saying is that's what the church should be like. That when someone comes in here and they have deep wounds, notorious sin, when they are grieving and they don't know where else to turn, the church should be that picture that welcomes them in and loves them as they are and makes this place, this group of people, their sanctuary. It's where, guys, you're in a marriage, if it's done right, I don't love Laura for what she can do for me. I don't love her for the treasure that she can provide for me. I love her because she is my treasure. It's not what she can give me. And the same with the church. We don't love based on performance or what we can give each other. We love because you are my treasure. You are Christ's treasure. You're his treasured possession. And love is eternal. Love is eternal. There's an interesting thing that Paul does here in 1 Corinthians. He turns from ethics where he talks about love, and then he starts talking about eschatology, which is about the end times in heaven. And why does he do that? Seems like kind of a, all right, love. Love, love, heaven. He's telling you that what you do in this life 
It's not just for ethics today. Love is not just your duty, it's your destiny. Love's not just your duty, it's your destiny. It's the language that you will speak in heaven forever. And God is saying, I want you to learn this language here and now. I want you to experience what it's like to have heaven on earth. And Paul is going to say, look where he goes. He says, love never ends. He says, as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What is he saying here? He's saying, you're not going to be in heaven one day and go, has anyone got a word from the Lord? Well, he's right there. You're not going to need tongues, because we'll all speak the same language. You're not going to need knowledge and doctrinal geniuses because the sum of all doctrine is going to be in all of its glory right in front of you. All of that stuff passes away. But how you've loved, the dividends and the fruit of that will never end. It will go on. And on, as you build heaven here, one living stone at a time, it will go on and on. And it's interesting that when you go from chapter 13 to chapter 14, you know what Paul focuses on? Building. He uses this word, akademeo, oikademeo, which is building up. It's, it comes from two words, house and to build. And then verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 12 and 17 and 26, he's talking about build each other up, build each other up. We're building heaven, build God's spiritual house. He's, he's mentioned this in 1 Corinthians 3. He mentioned it again in 1 Corinthians 8. He's talking about building the kingdom of God. He's talking about building heaven. Heaven is not merely something we inherit someday. It's something God, by His grace, has called us to build now. This day. Heaven, not yet glorified. Still lumpy stones and jagged edges. Heaven is all around us now. God is calling you to come and polish and form and to invest and to pour love into them. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. What does he mean? You throw tantrums when you're a child. You hear instruction or wisdom and you go, oh, I don't want that. I was just right before we came here. We got into it with Boogie, sweet, sweet, who refused to eat anything but watermelon. And had a tantrum when we said, no, you need to eat your chicken and carrots first. You think and reason like a child. It's my way, my way, my way, my way. But he says, when I became a man, when I finally realized that my father is a lot wiser than I ever thought he was, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Look, there's two things we all want. We want to be fully known and we want to be fully loved. And we usually pick one or the other. I can pretend to make everybody love me. Or I can share who I really am. And when you see what a mess I really am, that will be a challenge for you to love me. God knows me better than I know myself. 
And he loves me to infinite measure. And he calls on us to be like that to this world. To let people know that they can be known fully. That no matter what your scars, your wounds, your your deepest, darkest secrets, that you can come into the body of Christ and be loved. That we can see you for who you are in Christ. Not for the shameful person that you seek to hide from the world. That love is transformative. That's the job of the church. When Peter talks about living stones, he says this. He echoes Paul like like newborn infants. They long for pure milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you've tasted the Lord is good. As you come to him a living stone rejected by men. You yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. You're growing. You're not there yet. I'm not there yet. I still sometimes feel like a newborn in this whole faith deal. I writhe. I throw tantrums at God. But as I grow, as I invest, as I overflow, we are building each other into the spiritual house that God inhabits. Heaven. And it's hard to do that. I'm hard to love. I desperately want to be loved. I'm hard to love. You're hard to love. Love's costly when we put ourselves out there. It's hard. I remember one of my favorites, Sam Lamerson, who preaches here occasionally. I remember at Coral Ridge when Dr. Kennedy had his heart attack, Sam Lamerson jumped up and said, I will preach. I'll take over the pulpit. He stepped in. He did a fantastic job. I was walking by his office one day, and I saw that he was downcast. And I popped my head into his office, and I said, Hey, Dr. Lamerson, I just wanted to tell you Thanks a bunch. I appreciate all you're doing. And he says, well, it's nice that somebody does. And I thought, what are you talking about? Everybody loves you. You're like the lovable magician. And he says, and I walked into his office and he pressed the voicemail button on his phone. And it was one after the next, after the next, after the next of people shredding him for his preaching, which I think is good. I remember the first one because it caught me off guard was a guy saying, how dare you? How dare you preach on Mother's Day and not mention Mary, the mother of God? And I mean, there's part of you that wants to laugh. But when I'm looking at a guy that I respect and love and I see how that just deflates him, and then the next message and the next message... Love hurts to pick up and go back into that pulpit the next weekend and look at the person who's shredded you. you you've got these, right? In your life, in your business, in your marriage, in your home, where you've put yourself out there and somebody has gone whoosh. It is hard to get back up and go back and engage and to endure and bear all things. I tell my teachers this all the time. There's a reason when I was going through school, there were the old teachers, you know, that had been there forever, and it was like they're there for a paycheck, their heart was out of it. And I came to realize when I got into the profession why that is, because it is hard to love. 
It's hard to stay open. It's hard to stay vulnerable. It's hard to say, you know what? I just got totally shredded by that parent after I've totally invested everything I have into their kid. Wake up and do it tomorrow again. When we're cruel to one another, we train each other not to love. And when we love one another, oh, the fruit of that, it works with exponential interest in either direction you act. If you love, you'll open the doors to love in somebody else. But if you act with cruelty and bitterness and self-interest, you will shut them down and deflate the love they have or make it one hell of a fight to keep it. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in The Four Loves. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Carefully wrap it round with your hobbies and your little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to listen to the voice of your Savior who has mocked every step of His life and yet took up a cross. Vulnerable. To love is to listen to His instruction that says, if you want to come after Me, take up that cross and be vulnerable to show your love to the world. One of my favorite heroes in the Scriptures is Peter. He's always got his foot in his mouth. I can relate. And this, I love this painting. Peter, when Jesus told the apostles, Jesus said, I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be sold out and betrayed. I'm going to be crucified and on the third day risen from the dead. And Peter pipes up and says, even if all these guys fall away, on account of you, I never will. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. You know the story. Jesus is in the courtyards and he's being pummeled by the priests and spat on and enduring every kind of injustice. And Peter's out there. Now he loves Jesus. Goodness how he loves Jesus. And then the third time that he's asked if he knows this man, he screams and starts cursing at the kid. I do not know that man. And boom, the rooster crows. And Luke tells us that Jesus' eyes look over and catch Peter's. And this painting captures Peter as he turns away, runs, and goes out and weeps bitterly. After the resurrection, Jesus meets up with his disciples on the shore of Galilee. John says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter, boom, dives into the water and swims to Jesus. And Jesus has to deal with Peter. Peter's humiliated and ashamed. And so Jesus takes Peter and he walks him away from the group. And the conversation goes like this in your Bibles. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me more than those? Those apostles like you claimed you did? You can just imagine Peter. Lord, 
You know that I love you. Jesus comes back again and says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you truly love me? And Peter says, you know I love you. And then he asks him again. And Peter starts to sob. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And what's so profound is that behind the words in the Greek, I want you to listen to this conversation with the Greek in mind. Jesus pulls him away and he walks him aside. Peter's just been devastated. He's realized how empty he is and how shallow and how he doesn't follow Jesus with everything. And Jesus says, Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapao me? Do you agape love me? Do you agapao me? Will you follow me all in, set, resolute decision of the will to give everything you have to follow me? And Peter knows what he's just done. And Peter responds, Lord, I phileo you. I have such incredible regard for you. Jesus says, Peter, do you truly agapao me? Will you give it all? Will you make the decision to follow me to the ends of the earth to give everything for me? And Peter cracks a little more and he says, Lord, I phileo you. You know I phileo you. You know I have amazing love for you. And you can imagine Peter's crashing under the humiliation. And Jesus in his final act, this amazing tenderness, looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter's relieved. He can answer yes, honestly, to that one. Oh, yes, Lord. You know all things. You know I phileo you. I I love you so much. I have so much regard for you. You are my best friend, but you've just seen how I've acted. I can't tell you I agapeo you because I've just failed. I failed to give it all. You've seen what a shameful person I am. And then Jesus offers these words to Peter. After everyone, he says, feed my lambs. You want to show my, your, your love for me? Feed my sheep. And I tell you the truth, when you're younger, when you were a child, when you thought like a child, when you acted like a child, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, when you become a man, Peter, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. You know what that means. Peter's going to go to Rome. He's going to be crucified upside down by request because he felt unworthy to follow in the pattern of the Lord. But here's what I, there's a tradition that says that when Peter was on the way to Rome and he knew there was a death sentence hanging over his head, that he had second thoughts and began to turn back until he heard a rooster crow. And then he set his face toward Rome and Nero and gave it all. Peter learned agapao. He learned agape love. And as a result of that faithfulness, the kingdom of God, the building of God, exploded. The greatest apostle laid down his life and the kingdom exploded. And so Paul concludes with this. Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these are love. Love infuses everything. And oh, by the way, there's nothing about agapao that Jesus hasn't carried for you. 
Jesus left everything, comforts in heaven. He came into this world, was humbled, hated, reviled, spat upon, beaten, and never once turned away from his resolute decision to pursue you. I do the name game with Jesus, and this is who he is. God is love, but this is Jesus. Jesus is patient with you. He is kind. He does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices in the truth. He bears all things, has borne all things for you, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. And his love for you will never fail. It will never end. And he calls on you to take that brand of love and to start building heaven. You want to know what the greatest resource in heaven will be someday for you? When you imagine heaven, what is the most expensive material that God uses to build it? Look in the seat next to you. That is God's most precious building supplies of all of heaven. And he calls on you now to be his hands and feet, to pour your love into them. A resolute, unfailing, never surrender, never turn back, never turn away brand of agape love. And if we do that, my goodness, what the church would look like. What keeps you from loving? Are you hurt? Have you been trampled? Do you have wounds? Or do you have shames? You can go before the altar of God, go before the throne of God, knowing that that brings delight to the heart of God when you're willing to let go of those things. To leave them at the cross before Him so that He can embrace you as you are and charge you and fill you to go out and transform the world. His arms are open wide. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for for the way that you love us, for the way that you are unswerving, for the ways that all the different ways that I fail, all the different ways that I become self-protective, all the different ways that I seek after my own interests, Lord, I pray that as we, as we go forth, as we begin to grow in you from, from, from young ones and speaking like a child to growing into mature people who trust your ways, that you would help us to love as you have loved. That you would help this place be a safe place for sinners. Lord, I pray that you would move mightily in this people. Heaven is all around us. Help us to build it for your glory and for your good. Amen.